0: end with a verse that's in the book of Romans, chapter 12, the Bible has a lot of exhortations and admonitions to us as God's people. I think in Romans, chapter 12, verse 3, uh, there's an admonition here that I don't think can be overstated and overemphasized in our own life. Paul reminds us here in Romans chapter 12 and verse 3. He says, For I say through the grace given unto me, every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God has dealt to every man, the measure of faith. I believe within this text, we have here an admonition of a proper biblical perspective. Let no man think of himself more highly than he ought. Now when Paul concludes this verse by saying that God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith, I'd like you to notice here, just from a biblical or a uh, doctrinal perspective, Paul attributes the fact that you have faith to the fact that God gave it to you. Notice that? Faith in the religious world around us is often seen as something that man has or man carries or man possesses, and he's just kind of looking somewhere to put it. That's improper when you start reading the Bible. Paul even told the church at Thessalonica in Second Thessalonians chapter three, verse one he says, Brethren, pray for us, that the Word of God may have free course as it did with you, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for all men have not faith. Faith is not something you're born with, like like you're born with eyes and ears and and the nose and things like that. Faith is, in fact, the gift of God. It's a fruit of the Spirit that's laid out in Galatians 5.22. If we, as God's people, believe in God, if we have the ability to walk day in and day out and trust in the Lord, that's not something that we've just yoked ourselves up to do. That's a gift from God. To know who God is and to be able to trust in Him is a gift that comes from God. Therefore, Paul says, let us not think of ourselves more highly than we ought. Uh, You know, sometimes when I'm listening to folks on the radio or watching folks on TV, I'm kind of thinking that uh, they have the idea that they all just sort of come up with this new birth thing on their own. And a lot of times I've heard people say that. Well, I was just sitting somewhere and 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 thought occurred to me. I've tried everything else in the world. Maybe I'll just try God. No, sir. Paul says to the church at Corinth, I am that I am by the grace of God. I stand in this pulpit by the grace of God. We sit in these pews, we gather in this church, or we gather in this building about the grace of God. There is a constant admonition in the Bible to remind us of a proper perspective of ourselves and a proper perspective of God as well. Let us not think more highly than we ought. The Bible talks a lot about the subject of pride. Uh, In the book of Proverbs, it reminds us that pride goeth before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a father. James talks about those who are wise among us. If any man declares or says that he is a wise man, let him show out of a good conversation or out of a good life his works with meekness, James says. Having a meek and quiet spirit is not something that's very popular in American society, is it? Now, at, I think most everybody in here enjoyed yesterday. Yesterday was Saturday. Your little gods played yesterday. I mean, uh, you know, football was going on yesterday, and and the worship arenas were filled, and people cheered and chanted and hollered and yelled for their favorite person and. And when the teams play, you can tell they're excited too because they get the just the least accomplishment in football, which is a first down. That's that's the least accomplishment you have. And they get a first down and they jump up and scream and holler and point and dance like they've just created a world. That's the least that you could have done. But what are they saying? They're essentially saying, boom, 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 look at me. Look what I've done. Look at my Great accomplishments. Newspapers, magazines, grace the covers with people, and they magnify their accomplishments. We are used to, in this life, talking about our accomplishments. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 11, where we kind of like to take the rest of our time this morning and kind of go from here. Um, there was a thought that was conveyed to me many years ago, and I I don't think that I have ever taken time to expound on this from the Scriptures. I, I may have hit here or there on it, but I don't think I've ever really taken time to discuss this. And here's the thought. Have you ever considered the people in the Bible Greater children of God than yourself. Have I mean, you ever looked at what occurred in the Bible? Moses parted the Red Sea. Elijah called down fire from heaven. Jesus said that there was no man born of woman greater than John the Baptist. We ever looked at that uh, Hebrews chapter eleven at that what we would call the heroes, the, the Hall of Faith chapter. And looked at all those that are laid out there, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Abraham's wife, Sarah, and Samson and Barak, and all those people that are listed there. And have you ever thought, wow, if I could just be a Christian like them. Have you ever thought that the folks who were in the Bible were kind of on a higher plane than the rest of us? Well, I think some folks do. I'm here to tell you we're all on the same plane. We're all in the same spot. They were men of like passions, just like we are. They had the same problems, same troubles, same struggles in life. When you start looking at these great men in the Bible, whether they be Abraham or Moses or even Adam, they all had one thing in common. At some point, they forgot who they were. I have this problem. I think y'all might have this same problem once in a while. We all forget who we are. We all forget where we came from. We all have the tendency to be lifted up in pride and to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. In the Gospel of Luke chapter 11, and this story in Luke chapter 11 is also told in Matthew 12 and in Mark chapter 3. Uh, but in Luke chapter 11, we just, we want to use this one to read from. Jesus has been going about uh, casting out devils. And the objectors, the objectors that follow him and seek him uh, are saying he's doing this. By the power of Beelzebub or by the power of the devil himself. Jesus, they are attributing the ability of Jesus to cast out devils to the devil himself. Which if anybody's got enough sense to listen to that statement, you know the statement doesn't make any sense. And Jesus asked that question. You know, if Satan be divided against himself, this is verse 18, uh, how shall his kingdom stand? What sense does it make? For the devil to give a man power to cast out the devil. That's a self-defeating statement in and of itself. But Jesus makes this statement in verse 20. But if I with the finger of God cast out devils, no doubt the kingdom of God has come upon you. That's That's a beautiful statement in and of itself. He says, if I with the finger of God. Very little effort, but yet a great effect. If I with the finger of God cast out devils, no doubt the kingdom of God has come unto you. And in one of the other Gospels he uh, uses the phrase, if I with the Spirit of God cast out devils, the kingdom of God has come unto you. Now I wouldn't dare say that I have the ability to go around casting out demons and devils in this life. And I would not say that I have the ability to walk around with the finger of God and do things. But can we not stop and look at this and realize the Spirit of God lives in us? The Spirit of God is in us. If you are born again, if you are a child of God, The Spirit of God is in you, and the Spirit of God is with you. So if there are great mountains to be climbed in your life, you have the greatest help possible. God Himself. Paul reminds us in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10, He says, Be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Notice verse 21. When a strong man armed keepeth his palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he shall come upon him and overcome him, he taketh from him all his armor wherein he trusted and divideth his spoils. When a strong man armed keepeth Uh, His palace, his goods are in peace. I want to show you that through the Scripture and through this particular phrase here, the strong man that's under consideration here, number one, is the devil. I assure you that the devil is a strong individual. I assure you that the devil is a mighty individual. He is not an individual to be played with. He is not an individual to be mocked with. He is not an individual to be joked about. He is a mighty individual. How many of you would like to know where the devil came from? I'm sure that there's a few of us that might would like to know where the devil came from, and I think a lot of folks have sat up burning the midnight oil trying to figure out where the devil came from in the Bible. Well, The Bible doesn't really tell us necessarily as much where he came from. It tells us a whole lot more about where he's going. We do know this, that in Genesis chapter 3 we are told uh, that the devil was more subtle than any creature of the field that the Lord God had made. Now, did God make all the creatures of the field? Yes. Does that text tell us that God made the devil also? Very possibly. Possibly. The devil can't be self-existent. He can't be eternal. He's got to come after God came. So I would submit in some ways that God created him. You want any more than that? You're not going to get that this morning. Because I'd like to give you one more thing. You may sit and think about where the devil came from. It's a whole lot more important to know where he's going but it's even doubly more important to know what he's doing. In Second Corinthians chapter 2. And verse uh, 10, he says, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10, "To whom you forgive anything, I forgive also, for if I forgave anything to whom I forgave it, for your sakes, forgave I it in the person of Christ." It's, it's important that you understand the subject of forgiveness. We all have the tendency to not want to forgive people who've offended us. We all have within ourselves a, a level of holiness that we ourselves know we can't attain to, but we sure expect everybody else to attain to. People have offended you in life. People have offended me. They deserve to be punished for what they've done to me. Well, that sure got quiet. I didn't get a whole lot of amens on that one. Why why is that? Because that's that's a harsh statement. The reality is is that we all have offended folks. We've all offended each other. There may need to be some dealings with that we do understand, uh, whether it be in the public arena, the private arena, uh, the civil arena. But the reality is, is that nobody has offended anybody as much as we all have offended God. We, our nation is in distress right now, worrying about offending people. You say one little word, And it offends a small group of people and all of a sudden you've lost your business, you've lost your job, you've lost your standing in community because you offended a person. But nobody ever worries about offending God. This nation is not the least bit concerned about offending the great God of glory. They need to be more concerned about offending God. One of the reasons that the subject of forgiveness needs to be important to you and how you deal with other people around you and how you deal with offenses in your life is verse 11. Lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. It's more important for us to understand what the devil is doing in our life than where he came from. If I was to tell you that at the close of service today, and we are having lunch today, so we're going to have lunch, and then at the, at the close of service and after lunch, we're going to come back up here after lunch, and I'm going to give you the genealogy tree of the Dukes family, where I came from. Uh, how, many, how many of y'all would stay for that three-hour seminar? Nobody? Nobody? Jerry, Jerry would come, my buddy. There we go. Uh, my kids don't count. You're expected to be here. You can't leave till I leave. Uh, no, nobody cares about where I came from? I suspect the only people that are concerned about the Duke's family tree are the nuts that fell out of the tree, right? I suspect that the only people who are obsessed with the Devil's family tree are members of the family maybe. Folks, we, we got a, a greater family tree than his. One thing that we need to be aware of and one thing that we need to be sure of are the devices of the devil. He has conquered and overrun and destroyed every one of our heroes since the world began. Solomon, who was the wisest man ever lived, was destroyed by the devil. Abraham, who's the friend of God and the father of the faithful, fell to the power of the devil. Samson, who was the great redeemer and deliverer of Israel, the strong man of Israel, fell to the devil. It doesn't matter who you look at in the Bible. And it doesn't matter what you see that they accomplished. Every single one of them fell. Because the devil is stronger than all. Men may declare themselves wise. Men may declare themselves able to accomplish things. But men are also deceived. I believe that I heard correctly just this past week when Nick Saban was asked during the summertime, do you think Jimbo Fisher is going to defeat your team, De- defeat you this year? He said, defeat me in what? Golf? Now, some of y'all don't have the foggiest idea what that means. Jimbo Fisher was the first uh, assistant from Nick Saban's football head coach career to finally defeat him two weeks ago. Humble to the team. Embarrassed the team. I'm about to get run out of Alabama, ain't I? And all the Auburn fans said amen. But uh, it's, it's true. We all have the ability to forget who we are, and where we came from. We all have the ability to fall to the devices of Satan if we are not careful. The text says, "When a strong man armed keepeth his palace, his goods are in peace." Uh, in one way, this text does describe the relationship between Christ and the devil. Uh, the devil is a strong man. The devil possessed people back in that day. He's probably possessing a lot of people in this day. The devil is a powerful individual. The devil, as a roaring lion, goeth about seeking whom he may devour. The devil always goes after the weak, wounded, little, innocent, secluded lambs of the flock. The lion never goes after the strongest in the pride. The lion never goes after the most armed in the pride. The lion never goes after those who are surrounded by others. The lion always seeks those who are their weakest and who are alone. Those who seclude themselves in solitude, away from others, away from their families, away from the the worship of God, the collective church worship are always prone to being overtaken by the devil. It's just a fact of life. You watch the Nature Channel, right? Right? Which animal in the flock, which animal in the herd, which animal in the pride do the lions go after? The one that causes them the least resistance. If you want to know how to keep a strong nation, a strong nation is an armed nation. Now, whether they are physically armed with machinery or they are highly armed with with intelligence and just common sense. They need to be highly, heavily armed. One way to have a good, peaceful congregation, one way to have a good, peaceful church is to have a man in the pulpit heavily armed with the knowledge of God's Word. One way to have a peaceful, calm family is for you to be armed with God's knowledge. When you start having problems in your family, it's because one of y'all have stopped acting like what the Bible says you ought to act like. When you start having problems amongst groups of people, it's because they have stopped reading God's Word, stopped applying God's Word in their own family, and they've started solving things by there's a way that seemeth right unto a man. Jesus is laying out to these Pharisees here that the devil is a strong man. And when he's left alone, he ruins people's lives. He runs havoc. He wrecks people's lives. This is what he does. And notice it says here, I'd like you to notice something here. The scripture says, when a strong man armed keepeth his palace, his goods are in peace. His goods, there's a peacefulness, but it's in His goods. It's not in Himself. Uh, I think, um, are y'all learning that made in America is a whole lot more important than made in China? Because things made in America don't get caught in cargo ships on the coast of California. Our problems to find furniture are getting worse because all of our furniture is still on the coast of California in containers on ships, not being unloaded. But yay for us, we're global. We have a global mindset. Isn't that just wonderful? We're just so diverse. People that put America first are somehow... White supremacist nationalist. And yet, here's a prime example of what happens when you turn everything in your country over to someone else. When the strong man is armed and he keepeth his palace, his goods are in peace. So I've got alarm system on my house, I've got a gun on my hip, and I've got my cars in my garage. So my goods are in peace, right? But not the person. Because I'm worried about the alarm on my house, the car in my garage, and I hope to God I never have to use the gun on my hip. See what we're dealing with here? You, you can have everything boarded up and boxed up and chained up and locked up, but you yourself may still not be in peace. You can have a lot of things, but you yourself are still not in peace. And what happens is, he says, but when a stronger than he shall come upon him, this is verse 22. And shall overtake him or overcome him; he taketh from him all his armor wherein he trusted, and divideth his spoils. When the stronger than he cometh upon him, uh, actually in one of the other one of the other gospels, either Matthew twelve or Mark three, whichever one you decide to turn to, it may indeed say in there, uh, he cometh upon the man and bindeth the man. When a stronger than he cometh upon him and bindeth him. So he really does overtake this individual. He overtakes this individual to the point that this individual cannot do anything for himself. Then the stronger than he binds him and then overruns him, ransacks his house, divides his spoils. These are the lessons that you find in the old men of the Bible, in Elijah. Moses, Samson, Solomon, King David. Every one of them. Stronger than he came upon them. And bound them. Does this text ever tell us that Jesus... Ever ask the devil, would you like to be overcome? Doesn't really answer that question. Well, it kind of answers that question because that question is a ridiculous question. Jesus never asked the devil, would you like to be overcome? Would you like to be defeated? No. It, you just take it for what it is. Jesus is greater than the devil. And when he decides to overcome him and bind him, he does and he will. The New Testament reminds us, I believe it's in 1 John, where he says that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. I know folks say this, I know folks read that. I know I know preachers preach that because it's in the Bible. I'm just not sure people believe it. God's done everything he wants to or he can do, and the last is up to you, sinner friend. that that doesn't fit and harmonize with God's word. Men are very easily overcome. By the devil. The devil is very easily overcome by God. Both men and the devil are very easily overcome by God. Here Jesus says it's the finger of God. In one case, he says it's the Spirit of God. It's a very little effort that it takes for our Lord to overcome the devil. But if you turn if you turn back to The book of Genesis and you, and you look at the life of Adam. He's obviously the first person to fall prey to the power of the devil. He's the first person whom the devil came in and ransacked his home. If you were to do a study on the men of the Bible in which we may carry this out another few weeks to look at this because I think this is is important to us all. There are several questions that will be answered when you look at the life of Adam that are applicable to you. We all have problems in life. We all have troubles in life. We all wish Sometimes we were somewhere we are not. And we all wish we were better than what we are. And you hear a lot of complaining in the world around us about, you know, if I had this or if I had that or if I had this, I'd just be a better person, right? If I had this or if I had that, I'd just be a happier person. You hear this a lot. I think this from time to time. Therefore, I know you think this. Whether you want to nod and agree this morning or not, that's fine. But I know a lot of times we think this. Take the man, Adam. Adam is the one responsible for bringing sin into this world. He's the one responsible for putting all of us in the position that we are all in. I guess the only real group of people who can ever say it was my parents' fault is that we could blame everything on Adam. Doesn't that just relieve us of our responsibility? Not necessarily. Let's stop and think about this. Here in the last few years, there's been this rash that's kind of come through America of destroying the history of the United States of America. Um, here's an interesting thought to you. We've been reading to the boys at night. We've been reading the story of the hiding place, uh, by Corey Tin Boone. And we've only through the first two chapters. And I have just, I've got to stop every time I read the chapter and realize, wow, they've got the same problems we've got. See, Corey had a brother. His name was Willem. And Willem went off to, uh, to, uh, to college. And she says, he's, he sees a lot of things I don't see. And sometimes I wish, He couldn't see what he does see because he writes back to Corey and he says here at the university, there's been this rash or there's been this teaching, this seed that's being sown of a hatred of humankind like never before seen. Does that sound familiar? He says it's being taught there at the university level to hate the human race. What was the outcome of that teaching there at the university level of hating the human race? Well, her life revolved around the 1930s and the early 40s. What do we know about the early 40s? A man named Hitler rose up with a group of small Germans and started World War II. The Holocaust by the Nazis, not the Germans, by the Nazis, that killed over 6 million Jews because of their ingrained, taught hatred of the human race. What are our universities teaching now? That everything about America, if it's white, is hateful. Where do you think this is going to lead us if it continues? Human history has already laid out for us what people do when they view their life in a hateful manner rather than in a grateful manner. We've already seen in history past what people do when they live their life hateful rather than grateful. Adam was an individual. Adam was an individual who did not live his life grateful. As a matter of fact, in in the New Testament we read from a while ago, I believe the Apostle Paul also told us to take heed how we hear. That text is found in the New Testament. Take heed how you hear. Paul doesn't tell us to take heed what you hear. It is important what you hear, but it's important how you hear. Now, if you listen... And ignore. You haven't heard very well. If you listen. And mock it. You still haven't heard. Very well. Adam was an individual. Who did not hear. Very well. Because God told him. In the day that thou eatest thereof. Thou shalt surely die. Now. There's no way for Adam. To really understand. What death is. Because death doesn't exist at this point. So. When God tells Adam, in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die, I can see very reasonably Adam to say, how bad can death be? What is death? It's interesting in human nature that there are a lot of questions that don't go answered. But there are a lot of activities that revolve around it. So for example, in 1973, When they enacted Roe versus Wade and they made abortion legal in America, they did not answer one question. The very number one question that should have been asked and answered is, what is it? If I'm if I'm doing the dishes or you're doing the dishes or I'm cooking or I'm outside mowing the grass or something and my child comes up to me and says, hey, daddy, can I kill this? What was your answer going to be? Ah, Sure, I'm not doing anything. Or no, I don't have time to clean it up. No, your number one answer is going going to be kill what? What is it that you want to destroy or remove from your life? And that's the number one question that was not answered in 1973. Medical doctors had not progressed to the position that they are now. They had not progressed to the position of being able to, with a sonogram, see into the womb of a woman. What a marvel in human history. And not only can you, with a sonogram, see into the womb of a woman this black and white fuzzy image as it used to be, you can now see a full-blown 3D image. And know exactly what you're looking at. Now we can answer the question, what is it? I guess the second question is, do we care? Because no, we don't. Because we do know what it is. When God told Adam, in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die, Adam could have very logically said, what is death? And had God explained to him everything that we can see throughout the Scriptures, I guess Adam could have then next said, do I care? When you are warned in life about the way something is going to end, your first question should be, do I care? I guess another question could be, I guess another question of Adam's could have been was, Do I respect the person saying this? The God of glory told him, in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. I guess Adam could have said, how much do I trust the God of glory? He should have trusted him with all his life. Well, when you look at our lives, you look at human beings, you look at the mess that we're in, oftentimes people say, well, if I just had better parents, I'd be a better person. How many of y'all in here know that you needed better parents? No takers? I'm the only one that had simple parents? I'm the only one that had parents who were misfits. Uh, we, we've all had we've either had parents that are misfits, or we are parents that are misfits. We've either had parents who were sinners, or we're all parents who were sinners. Adam can't make that though. Adam cannot make that statement. Adam cannot stand up and say, my father was a drunk. My father was a dope addict. My father was a deadbeat dad who didn't keep a job. Adam cannot say that because his father was the God of glory. He came straight from the hand of God. So his heredity, where he came from as far as coming from the hand of God, could not excuse what he did. Well, you know, I, I live down here on the wrong side of the tracks. I live down here in the ghetto instead of over yonder in the getmo. If I just had better things growing up, my bicycle was better and shinier. My basketball goal was uh I actually had a net on it instead of a peach basket. If I had a basketball goal that was on a, a, a concrete court instead of out here in uh, a, a dirt yard somewhere, uh, I'd be a better person. Can Adam make that statement? Was Adam's home life a wreck? Adam's home life was not a wreck. Adam lived in the Garden of Eden. He lived in the paradise of God. A a, a mist rose up from the the earth and and watered the ground. And there were no weeds and there were no thorns and there were no goldenrod. And there was none of this mess that grew out here. God told him to tend the garden. I don't know what there was to tend. Walk around and make sure that the plants were still... I don't know. He can't claim his home life was a disaster. Can't even claim that the one he was married to was a problem. Because sin hadn't entered into the world yet. Then he couldn't even claim where he'd come from as far as the land he lived in, his past, his present, his future. None of that. None of that was a problem in Adam's life. This is what we're getting at. This is the point we're trying to make. Even in Adam's life, none of that was a problem. His father was perfect. His home was perfect. His wife was perfect. Everything he had, everything he was surrounded with, his environment, everything about him was perfect, and he still sinned. Because the devil came along and said unto his wife, Yea, as God said. Now she was deceived in the process, the Bible tells us. that Adam was not deceived but the woman being in in the transgression, she was deceived. This is why the Bible tells us that by one man sin entered into the world, not by a set of parents or a couple or a man and a woman. Nothing happened until Adam sinned because Adam was the one given the responsibility. can't really blame any external problems in life. Yet he sinned and fell Adam Adam was created, he was not created in a state of complete perfection. Adam was created in a state of uprightness, capable of falling. He was not sinlessly perfect. He was created in a state of innocence and uprightness capable of falling, and he fell. Which is what makes Jesus Christ even so much greater than Adam, that when Jesus Christ came to this earth, he did not come in a state of uprightness, capable of falling. He came in a state of complete perfection, capable of laying down his life, is the way that he came. One of the things that we need to stressed not only to others around us, but specifically to ourselves, is that when the problems and the troubles and the struggles in life come, we are not left to solve the problems and struggles of our life by ourselves. There's one greater than us that is on our side. In Jeremiah chapter 31 I'd like you to notice here a verse, there's a couple of them. There's, there'll be one in Jeremiah, and then we all also want to turn to the book of uh, Isaiah to, to kind of get some things uh, implanted in our mind about uh, this issue. This proper biblical perspective for us all concerning the problems and troubles in our life are solved by one thing, understanding the strength of God that He is here, Help. You've got something that's overcome you in life. You've got a problem that's overcome you in life. People have addictions that overcome them in life. People have irresponsibilities that overcome them in life. And one of the reasons that people do not come out of their tr- troubles and their struggles and their trials any better than they do is that they do not lean on the Lord. In Jeremiah chapter 31 Verse 11 says, For the Lord hath redeemed Jacob and ransomed him from the hand of him that was stronger than he. When Adam sinned and plunged the entirety of the human race into sin, it put us straightly in the hand of the devil himself. The devil is stronger than Than you. That's just a fact. The devil is stronger than me. It took Jesus Christ. Coming to the cross. Paying for your sin. To redeem you or ransom you. From the hand of him. That was stronger than you. If you'll notice this within this pattern. In other words. You're on the bottom of the totem pole here. You're on the bottom of the barrel here. There's one greater than you, the devil himself. But there's one greater than both of us, and that's God himself. But how much sense does it make for a preacher to stand in the pulpit and say, sinner friend, God has done all he can do. Now it's up to you. If you'll just take the hand of God, God will ransom you and save you. That's not what this text says. The text says that he that was stronger, he that was greater, the Lord hath redeemed Jacob and ransomed him from the hand of him that was stronger than he. The sinner friend is not cooperating with God here. God is coming down and taking two parties and separating them. He is claiming you for himself and the devil will be cast into the lake of fire at his last day. That's exactly what this text is teaching. Uh, there's also another one. It's in it's in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 49. 49, I think, and verse 24. Isaiah 49 and verse 24 says, Shall the prey be taken from the mighty? Or the lawful captive delivered. That's a beautiful question. Shall the prey be taken from the mighty? Who's the prey? The P-R-E-Y in this case. Who's the prey? That's you. Who's the mighty? That's the devil. I'd like you to also notice. Shall the lawful captive be delivered? See that term lawful captive? You know why you were captive of the devil? Because you deserve to be. When Adam sinned and plunged himself and you and me all into sin, we're sinners bound for help because we deserve to be. Anybody who objects to the doctrine of the eternal punishment of the wicked doesn't understand we are lawful captives. They don't understand who we've offended and how bad we've offended them. People don't understand that even in life, even in life itself, punishment is uh, handed out differently depending on the person you offend. So, for example, we're out here in the parking lot and we decide to all leave all at the same time and we all occupy the the same place at the same time. Somebody's going to get a fender bender, right? I've offended you. You've offended me. You hit my car. I hit your car. My complaint is against you or your complaint is against me. We let our insurance companies fight it out and we go our separate ways, correct? But if you go down the street here and you hit a car, you've offended someone in greater authority than your redneck preacher. And they may take you and lock you in the slammer for a month and not tell anybody. But if you go up yonder to Washington, D.C., District of the Criminals, and you throw a rock through a window there at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, Your crime is against someone even greater than the local sheriff, and your punishment will be harsher. See, see, that's why, that's why they're imprisoning these folks that just walked around the Capitol last year. They're demonstrating their dominance over you. You may offend me, I may offend you, I may offend this entire nation. But if people have an objection to the eternal punishment of the wicked, they do so because they don't understand the great God of glory whom we offended, whom we threw a rock through His window. We are lawful captives. And if He sends His Son down to this earth if He comes down in the person and work of Jesus Christ and dies for us on the cross and pays our debt, it is indeed an act of amazing, unbelievable grace. Shall the prey be taken from the mighty? Only by one more mighty than the mighty. Or the lawful captive be delivered? Only if the lawful captive is paid for. But thus saith the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken away and the prey of the terrible shall be delivered. For I will contend with him that contendeth with thee and I will save thy children. I will contend with him that contendeth with thee. Now notice here. God is not sitting on a throne here. And the devil is on one side, and you're on the other. The Bible does tell us that the devil as our adversary goeth about as a roaring lion. The devil is our adversary. We have we have things in the court system called an advocate and a prosecutor. But the prosecutor really could be called our adversary. That prosecutor doesn't like who you are and what you've done, and your advocate is on your side. Y'all understand that concept, right? Notice, this does not say that two people shall stand in the court in front of God and he's going to hear both arguments from both sides. That's not what this says. Your adversary, the devil, contends with you. And God says, I will contend with him. You catch it? You're not even asked to talk. You're not even asked to speak. God doesn't want to hear what you've got to say. You know Why? You'd mess it up if you said anything. He, the judge of this universe, will contend with the mighty devil and He will overrule him. Because His Son, Jesus Christ, will go to the cross and pay your punishment and pay your penalty and pay your crime and pay your debt and release you and you will go free. and He will go to the grave. It's not any more difficult He said, I will contend with him that contend with thee and I will save thy children. Boy, there was a parent.
1: I don't know that there's
0: any parent alive that doesn't look back on their life and say what a miserable mistake. I don't know that there's any parent alive that doesn't look back and say, wow, I could have done this different, this better, that different, this better, and just beat themselves up on a daily basis about how bad they were as a parent. Does anybody in here disagree with that statement? If you disagree, you're not going to say it. Boy, what's my hope? What's your hope? That the God of glory... He's going to look down in mercy and He's going to contend with the wicked one who contends with my children and my children shall be saved. Despite the mess that I've made, despite the mess that I am, it's amazing what great children are. Right? Despite the mess that you are. Despite the mess that you're in. It's amazing what great children. Are. Why is that? Because God, in His mercy, has decided to look down and have compassion on the ignorant and the unlearned. I could have done better. No doubt, no doubt about that, and probably should do better from this point on. But you know, you could have done everything. Right. And your children still could be a mess. Because God did everything right, didn't He? He created the world in six days. He created man on the sixth day. And He said, All of this is good, yea, very good. God did everything right, didn't He? And His children still went to betray, didn't they? So when you think yourself a failure, think of God? Do you think that He did everything right and Adam still did the wrong thing? Friends, the reality is is when we get in trouble, I think God expects that. He remembers our frame that we are but dust. He remembers and knows that we are just a fallen creation. Is He upset with us? Probably is at times. I'm sure that there are times He doesn't like me. I'm sure there are times you don't like the Lord. But He ain't never stopped loving us. He ain't never stopped loving you. When children look at you and they ask you, Your marriage is a wreck. Why do you still love this person? Because God still loves me. That's the greatest thing that we could ever do. The right perspective for us all is a biblical perspective. It puts God first. It's a biblical perspective that reminds us that our strength is not in ourselves, but in the God of glory. Be strong in His might and in the power of His strength. good and patient attention.